Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. In the middle of the 20th century, there was a passionate affair between the Soviet empire and newly independent West African states. It was a short, intense, and acrimonious love story built on shared dreams for a non-capitalist future. Alessandro Yandolo's new book, Arrested Development, The Soviet Union in Ghana, Guinea, and Mali, 1955 to 1968, explores the history of this unlikely romance. The book traces the rise and fall of the Soviet Union's engagement with these three West African nations. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lisa Prosperetti. Today, as I just mentioned, my guest is Alessandro Yandolo. Alessandro is a lecturer in Soviet history at the University College London. Alessandro, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hello. Thank you uh, for having me. Yes, I'm very, very excited to talk to you about this book. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to us? What initially drew you to this project? Uh, yeah, so um, my my interest in history um, comes from from politics, from an interest in in politics, and and especially the the politics of the um, uh, radical left. Um, and so the Soviet Union is my main research interest, of course, uh, given its place in the in the history of socialism of, of communism. Um, but in exploring Soviet history, I, I uh, wanted to look at uh, um, an encounter between the radical socialism of the Soviet Union, which, you know, by, by the 1950s, if not earlier, had obviously lost uh, um, a lot of its appeal, its credibility, um, and, the, and the radicalism, the radical anti-colonialism of, of Ghana, of Guinea, and of Mali after independence. Um, I was curious to see whether this encounter could sort of revive uh, a the Soviet Union could retrieve some of its more radical, more revolutionary even drive uh, by, by sort of encountering these newly independent states. Um, that's what brought me to the project, yeah. Well, I think my first question is to ask you to clarify what this book is not, because we see the Soviet Union, Ghana, Guinea, and Mali in the title, and your instinct, one's instinct is to imagine that this is a wag the dog story. 
or this, right? This is a story where the little guy takes advantage of the big guy, or at least tries to in the constraints of the Cold War. And you say that this isn't a classic uh, story that plays out along those lines. How do you read it? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, so, so, so you know, this idea of like the the, the tail wagging the dog uh, uh, is is one of the the sort of many sort of catchphrases, really, of sort of classic Cold War scholarship. It's it's very sort of social science in a way that I kind of really dislike. It's, it's I never liked it. Uh, uh, although, of course, I mean, you know, it has uh, it's important in its place in the in the historiography too. Um, but I think in this case, in, in the case I've sort of explored, it really makes very little sense um, because the idea of sort of this, this tail wagging the, the dog, it really assumes um, homogeneity in, in politics and it suggests that differences in ideas didn't matter that much. Uh, and one of the points that I try to make in the book is sort of showing that the, the governments of, of Ghana, of Guinea, of Mali, they looked at the Soviet Union for very specific reasons, um, which were related to the, to the review of the world, uh, their place in the world, and also their sort of political and uh, um, economic aspirations, hopes. Um, so, so to simplify a bit, what they asked the Soviet Union, what they looked at the Soviet Union for, well, they wouldn't ask the West or other countries in, in Africa, for example, um, they looked at the USSR for ideas about the state. They looked at the West for ideas about the market. Um, and the two are not really so easily replaceable. Um, that's why I don't buy the idea of um, sort of playing one block against the other or sort of taking advantage. Um, interest was very specific. as the reason why the Soviet Union was allegedly good at certain things and sort of other countries may have been more interesting for, for other reasons, yeah. Right, I take your point. These aren't interchangeable units. This, this is a moment in which ideas and ideologies really matter because people really believe in them. It's not just about uh, claims to material uh, resources, even though that might be part of it. Of course, yeah. I mean, resources matter matter a lot, uh, uh, and and the material world uh, matters very much. But you know, what what to make of the material world? Well, that depends on ideas and how how you think about things, right? So, lay out the case then for why the Soviets are intrigued by these three West African nations, and why the West African nations—Ghana, Guinea, and Mali why they see something special in the USSR of the mid to late 50s, early 1960s. How, why is each side attracted to each other? Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good question. Um, you know, at that moment in time, uh, all four are a little bit special uh, or, or very special. Um, Ghana, Guinea, and Mali, of course, are among the first uh, sort of territories to become independent from, from European empires after after World War II. Uh, Ghana is the first one in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Guinea and Mali sort of follow a couple of years later. Um, but it's not just that. It's not about being the, the first or, or among the very first. It's also uh, being especially radical, uh, being guided by uh, radical politics, radical ideas, radical ideologies. Um, and that meant uh, anti-colonialism and, and crucially anti-Westernism, uh, the rejection 
to an extent at least of, of capitalism and to a full extent of imperialism, uh, um, at least in the in the context of the, of the European empire. Um, and that made them, uh, all three of them, uh, very, very interesting from a, from a Soviet point of view, because that combination of newly independent country that was really very radical, very determined to detach itself uh, from from the old colonial power as well. That was that was special. Um, so for a while, uh, uh, the sort of Soviet government and the governments of, of Ghana, of Guinea, and of Mali sort of spoke the same language, uh, uh, or 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 a very uh, uh, compatible language uh, for a few years at least. Yeah. Um, the Soviet Union w- was special or, or interesting in, in the eyes of many people in, in West Africa, in, in, in the three countries I uh, sort of explore more closely and, and beyond, uh, of course, um, because especially at that moment in time, sort of mid, mid to late 1950s, um, the USSR really was uh, uh, um, the, the big economic success story uh, um, of, that, of that decade. Uh, after the war, very high growth rates and technological exploits, uh, you know, building of dams, agricultural mechanization, huge factories, uh, um, the space race and everything that came with it, you know, all the Sputnik, uh, artificial satellite, a few years later, Yuri Gagarin, and how sort of widely publicized that was, including including in, in, in Africa and, and beyond. And that's really captured um, the, the attention of people. Um, they seem to be a, a country, a polity, a society that had achieved uh, high levels of, of economic prosperity and technological advancement um, following a, a distinctive recipe. Um, and, and, and the USSR seemed to provide answers to more or less the same questions that many people in, in Ghana, in Guinea, and in Mali had about the future of the country, the future of the economy, the organization of society, and, and so on. Um, so yeah. Well, you're going to have to excuse me because I'm sure I'm going to belabor this metaphor of the romance of the attraction. But so let's say that this is what it's it a relationship. Is. Yeah, it was a relationship. So, yeah, so it, a relationship. I find it appropriate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this this is what the kind of the the urgency and the speed and the 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 potential answer to this riddle of development that was so appealing. And you you come at this question really as a historian of the Soviet Union. So you're, you know, you're not coming at this from the perspective of a trained Africanist. And so one of the um, interventions, I think, that you make in the historiography is to reorient from the Soviet Union perspective the role of these West African countries, rather not as periphery to the Soviet third world project, but you argue in some ways as center. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um this is, a, this is a little bit of a sort of, a, um, well, something that I, I feel shouldn't, but but it's often a bit controversial. Uh, um, and yeah, I think, I think we were chatting about it a little while ago, but uh, um, Russian history, Soviet history, like, like most fields, um, tends to be sort of really dominated by uh, sort of national histories that look with a little bit of hesitation, if not hostility sometimes, that's sort of trying to break national boundaries. And, you know, if you, if you want to say something about Soviet history, um, maybe Bamako is as important as uh, Astrakhan. Uh, uh, that's not something that, that people in the field usually, uh, or not everyone, uh, sort of accepts or or takes um, takes lightly. Um, but that's that's the approach I've tried uh, I've tried to take uh, um, 
it's important to look outside uh, just as much as inside uh, uh, society, states, people, individuals, uh, organizations, whatever. Uh, none of these things operates in a vacuum. Uh, there is there is relationships. Uh, uh, there is understandings, misunderstandings, connections, misconnections. Uh, we we all live in the world for, for better or worse, and and the same the same is true uh, for for the USSR, uh, and of course for, for for Ghana, for Guinea, for Mali, and 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 uh, every every other state in in Africa. As as you say, um, I am very much not uh, um, a trained Africanist. I, I I my background is sort of modern Russian history. Uh, um, and I've tried to be as involved uh, in in um, sort of West African uh, history in terms of uh, sort of sources and debates and historiography as as I can. Um, but the book remains primarily a book on on the Soviet Union and its place in the world. I I, I would say um, that the centrality issue is a is a um, is an interesting one. Um, also, when people think about well, in this case, the the, the Cold War and 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 what what's the Cold War about? Uh, you know, since the early two thousands, there's been a huge push to uh, um, yeah, people say sort of decentralize. I'm not sure that's the that's the right expression. It's it's really understanding that the center is not it's not Europe. <laughs> it's never been Europe. It's always been about uh, 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 places that are not Europe. I mean, Europe's the periphery very much in that case, uh, uh, and and sort of. West Africa and of course the, the, the rest of Africa and, and Asia and Latin America, they're very much at, at the center uh, of, of, of what's going on, uh, sort of an often violent debate between sort of, you know, supporters of individualism versus collectivism, state versus market, socialism versus liberalism. There are so many sort of different categories one one can think of, but uh, um, the, the, the global south or, or the third world, uh, uh, that was at the center of it, uh, together probably with the Soviet Union and, and the United States. But in my mind, at least, there has never been much doubt that it's Europe that's a little bit on the periphery uh, at this moment in time. Yeah. Well, provincializing Europe, I think, was <laughs> was a phrase, right? And that's very Absolutely, much what, yeah. what you see happening here in, in, in this book. Um, so what you are identifying, this the, the foundation of this relationship that's drawing the West African leadership to the Soviet Union, and that the Soviet Union is really intrigued by the possibility of um, implementing or guiding is a, an idea of development that is explicitly not capitalist, but this doesn't exactly mean that it's communist. The Soviets are very clear that that's not the model that they think will be successful to promote in West Africa. And the West Africans are quite clear, but that's not what they're interested in either. So explain to us the development model that brings them together, the West Africans and the Soviets. Yeah, uh, um, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that um, this is certainly not about capitalism and, and, and both sides or, or all sides, all parties involved are, are quite clear about that. Uh, um, but it's also not about communism, at least not sort of classic uh, um, Soviet style uh, communism, you know, sort of fully planned economy, uh, nationalization of the means of production and, and, and so on. Um, the, the, the simplest way to 
explain it is uh, um, it's a form of state capitalism. Uh, the, the, the Soviet aim uh, was to build uh, um, a large state sector in, in the economies uh, of these countries and sort of other countries around the world uh, in, in which uh, so an economy in which the state would very much be dominant. It would be the dominant economic force in terms of investment, in terms of resources, in terms of production, um, but very much uh, um, living together, if not in coordination uh, with, with very many elements of um, sort of classic market structures surviving and even thriving under certain conditions. Um, the state would provide the bulk of the, the investment and the resources, but it would work together uh, with market structures um, from, from, you know, things like shops uh, to, to productive cooperatives in, in the countryside and so small scale factories uh, um, and workshops and so on, all more or less administered in a, in a private way for private interest. Yeah. They they didn't quite know um, what this would be and and how to call it uh, uh, because it's a bit complicated for yeah for sort of ideational ideological reasons. Uh, uh, it's not communism. It's also not capitalism. But but you know we've got to find a way to spin it in in, in sort of a credible and and also attractive uh, way. And and so they they. You know, come up where uh, people in the uh, in the Soviet Union come up with this idea of the non-capitalist model of development. So, so they're happy to define it in the negative. You know, don't really care what it is as long as it's not capitalist. Fine, fine by us. It works. Um, and and yeah, they stick to that to that expression. The idea, of course, was that uh, um, by building these large state sectors in the economy, uh, with very much with the support of the, of the Soviet Union and uh, and the socialist world at large, really, um, eventually over time, uh, uh, these societies would be able to make the transition to sort of full communism, full socialism. Um, but that was very much understood to be a very long-term kind of transition that was going to require a very long time. Um, and everyone seemed happy uh, about it, at least at least for a while. Yeah. So I want to turn to the kind of chronological sequence of your book, now that we've talked about the general framework. But before I do, I wanted to note your chapter titles. There's really a literary uh, bone in your body. Each chapter title is named after a, a, a famous 20th century English novel. So you have A Farewell to Arms, Brave New World, Things Fall Apart, uh, The End of the Affair. I wondered about your, you know, obviously this was conscious, but um, is this something that you had long planned to do or is this something that came towards the end of writing? No, they always had they always had these names and sort of it's uh I, I mean I like the idea of a text referencing a different text in a sort of slightly oblique ways, you know. Uh, uh um I, I find it sort of interesting. Uh, uh and I mean I like fiction of course and sort of novels and, 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 and stories. Uh, um all all of the sort of novels that are referenced in a slightly oblique way, they have something to do with what's in the in the chapter. Uh, it may be that the setting uh, where it takes place, uh, it may be the story, the themes, sort of the story arc, uh, uh, focusing on things like, you know, ambition, hard work, disappointment, and loss uh, as, as well. Um, so I've tried to sort of link them uh, in, in, in that way. Uh, well, I, I like it. I thought I it was a good idea. It. I really appreciated it. It made me smile, you know, as, I, as it dawned on me. 
And it made me think our mutual friend, Artemi Kalinowski's first book is The Long Goodbye by Raymond, which he named after Raymond Chandler. And it's about the, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And so it made me kind of think that this could be a new trend, that maybe we can get people outside the Sovietologist space to, <laughs> to begin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I guess Soviet people are maybe big readers, but uh, but uh, I, I think, I think I don't know, in principle, I think it's always good to have a title that's uh, it's either a little bit funny uh, uh, or, or it references something else. Um, I, I find it a uh, stimulating practice when writing. It helps me sort of uh, keep going. Uh, yeah. Well, and the title of the book, Arrested Development. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right. So, okay, let's let's start at the beginning of um, of your chronological sequence. And we are in the, the first chapter where we're trying to understand why until Stalin's death, the third world, which is a term that you talk about why you, you choose to use this term, isn't particularly interesting, appealing on the radar for uh, the Soviet Union. And then that changes after after Stalin's death in 1953. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's a, that's a very good question. And uh, um, that's very much sort of the standard story uh, um, that it's only after Stalin's death that Sort of people in the Soviet Union rediscovered the post-colonial world, or or you know, the world beyond Europe, or the Third World. Uh, and I've contributed uh, uh, to, to to this standard story myself. Uh, um, I have to say, I, I think that in future years, uh, um, I'm sure that historians will start to sort of question that assumption and 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 you know, look at sort of what happened, uh, let's say, under Stalin and and. and you know, uh, uh, reveal that there was a lot of interest and very interesting things going on and so on. Uh, uh, but, but in general, I, I would I would certainly, uh, uh, um, yeah, well, accept the main assumptions here. Uh, um, one of Stalin's points uh, was that the colonies were, were colonies. Uh, uh, they were controlled by the imperialists and 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 unable to sort of aim for for socialism uh, there were limits to to what to what people could do uh, in a in a colonial context um and from that point of view independence or, or political independence could could be uh, um well meaningless in 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 many ways uh, because the former uh, colonist uh, often remained uh, for example economically dependent uh, on the former colonial powers, uh, uh, so, so so the power relationship didn't necessarily change from from some Stalin and his people's point of view. Um, that's why they were, let's say, skeptical or hesitant uh, uh, to 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 become involved. Um, that's something that that changes in 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 the in the second half of the of the fifties uh, uh, with Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, uh, and, and and you know like finding the, these ideas, these assumptions, a little bit limiting uh, for what the Soviet Union could or maybe should do. Um, sort of adopting a, a more flexible approach, uh, again aiming for something that's not necessarily socialism, uh, classic full uh, uh, socialism, uh, but but for something they call non-capitalism. 
Well, if you accept that, then maybe former colonies could actually manage to detach themselves from from the from the European empires uh, and and the West in in general. Um, and they think that the Soviet Union can facilitate, uh, can help in this process by by promoting economic cooperation with with sort of newly independent countries and also with states that have been um, independent for longer in in Africa and Asia in in Latin America and Latin America too. Um, so it's a little bit of a change. In, in the ambition, uh, uh, maybe scaling down expectations, but because of that, gaining more flexibility. You mentioned uh, the economist who's kind of associated with these ideas, Modest Rubinstein. And I don't want to be too simplistic, but it's hard with Cold War potential binaries always around the corner. You almost frame him as if he's a Soviet Rostow in the sense that he's theorizing a, a, a path of modernization. And you say that the, the Soviets are actually not far behind the Americans at all at developing their own sort of modernization theory. Yeah. So, so uh, um, David Engerman has, has written uh, uh, specifically about Modest Rubinstein and sort of his role in, in, in uh, um systematizing really these ideas, right? Uh, um, and he's certainly very important. He's one of the very first intellectuals in, in, in the Soviet Union at this point in time uh, to formulate, to, to put the idea of this known capitalist path or model of development in, in, in uh, sort of in an ordered uh, format, in a, in, a, in a systematic, uh, more or less systematic way. And then of course, many more people uh, contribute to it, looking at specific regions, thinking about case studies, complicated, simplifying what, what, what happens in pretty much any uh, sort of intellectual field. Uh, um, the, the, the basic idea was yeah, the establishment of a form of state capitalism in, in third world countries, which the Soviet Union uh, uh, um, would be able to, to support. I mean, that was identified, uh, state capitalism was identified as a good thing uh, for these societies, uh, um, something that few years Earlier uh, uh, would have been absolutely unacceptable um, in the in the Soviet context. It would have been considered still sort of a bourgeois regime and not worthy uh, of, of Soviet of Soviet support or or not showing the promise of something that um, sort of the USSR should be concerned about. Um, in in terms of yeah, sort of Soviet modernization theory. Um, well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, people in the Soviet Union were very interested in in global political economy, uh, as as we would say today, uh, uh, and that's because uh, the, the the Marxist intellectual tradition has always been concerned with sort of issues related to the international economy and economic exchanges and economic growth worldwide. Uh, and so, in a way, it's natural uh, um, that people belonging to to, to a society built and sort of Marxist foundations uh, would continue being uh, interested in that. Um, it, it's difficult to say sort of what predates what and, you know, like who's more advanced. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's complicated, standard historian's answer. Uh, um, I, I would say that maybe, and, and I'm obviously less familiar with the with the American case, and I know that people like Rostell were also very, very involved in in sort of state uh, policy and, and, and things like that. Uh, certainly in the Soviet case, the, the elaboration and thinking about this idea was very much related to um, the need 
to find a theory that would fit reality. Uh, uh, the political readership has decided more or less that the USSR should be involved in these ways, um, in, in these places, with these governments. Um, how do we think about it? How do we find answers that can be sort of enabling uh, uh, for this new approach? And ideally can also make some intellectual sense. Um, so there is a fair amount of uh, kind of instrumental thinking uh, there for sure. But then again, I guess in, in this field, it's wherever one looks, I mean, you're going to find connections between sort of state action and, and what happens in, you know, academia and think tanks and whatnot. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, particularly in the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I'm interested as to why, and I think we touched on this earlier, but if, if we could deepen the reflection, as why does the state capitalist model uh, appeal so much to these West African states, which you say they really think of more as African socialism than as a Soviet import exactly. What is it about the power of the state in that it becomes the main agent of managing or marshalling the economy that is so appealing to Ghana, Guinea, and Mali. Yeah, that is a this is an excellent excellent question. Um, so, from from the point of view of the people who uh, first win independence and then and then sort of gain power. Uh, in in Ghana, in 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 Guinea, um, and in Mali, uh, uh, one of the main sort of frustrations they 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 shared. I mean, vastly different countries run by uh, very different uh, individuals and and leaderships and, and and political parties and so on. But something they they shared uh, um, was a frustration um, with the economic uh, dimension of decolonization. Uh, uh, um, you know. Ruma in Ghana, Sekoutoure in, in Guinea, Modibo Keita, they were all very unhappy with the idea of continuing to rely on, on England and France uh, uh, for their economic needs uh, and, and economic ambitions after independence. Uh, um, they wanted, uh, ideally, a, a, a break uh, with the old colonial practices. Uh, um, and they also aspired to build prosperous economies uh, in, in their countries uh, with a strong state attached uh, to that economic economic reality. Um, and that was pretty much the promise uh, of Soviet ideas. That's more or less exactly uh, what the Soviet Union sort of told them they could do uh, uh, with Soviet sort of cooperating uh, with the USSR and, and with the socialist world. Uh, um, so that's why it seems so interesting, uh, cutting those dependency links, uh, building a stronger economy, building a stronger state, independent state in parallel to that. Uh, um, that seemed really quite appealing from their point of view. What's so interesting about reading this book for me as someone who studies Ghana and 
has more familiarity certainly with the literature in uh, West Africa than in the Soviet literature is that some of the things that I have come to assume that I know about this period of West African history actually looks very different um, from the Soviet perspective and from the sources that, that you've looked at. So one detail that really stood out to me is, you know, Guinea under Sekotore and voting no on the referendum and, and kind of going against De Gaulle's project is, is meant to be this icon of, of radical ambition really on the world stage. And yet it turns out that, or at least you tell us, that he's basically, Sekotore after voting no, is wanting the West to recognize the new independent Ghanaian state and wants the West to do so before the Soviets do. And um, actually he's really trying to push the Soviets away so that he can give the West time to make up its mind to, um, to recognize diplomatically independent Guinea. Right? This is something that changes certainly my perspective of what's happening you know, in 1958. So I wonder if you have any other examples about details or, or stories that change your perspective somehow when you look at West Africa from the archives and the, the mentalities of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's a that's a good and difficult and difficult question. Um, I, I I think I think the um, you know the sort of story with with Secretary and his um, sort of his government's initial hesitation. Shall we establish uh, diplomatic relations with Soviet Union, other socialist countries straight away? Uh, regardless of the consequences. It has a little bit to do with what we were talking about um, sort of earlier on today, uh, um, the role of ideas uh, and, and, and how dishomogeneous sort of the West and, and the socialist world could be. Um, I think uh, uh, that, that, that the, the Guinean government's hope uh, at that moment in time, very, very difficult. Uh, uh, the country has become independent. Uh, the, the French uh, government has reacted um, in an incredibly harsh way by sort of imposing an embargo and, and Guinea is in a very difficult sort of economic and social situation. So, so options are limited on, on the table. Uh, 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 the, the, the situation is, is a dangerous one. Uh, the initial hope um, is that the Americans would, would sort of come to the rescue uh, to, 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 to an extent by, well, in material ways and also possibly convincing the, the, the French government that their policy is a... Uh, is, uh, uh, um, problematic one and should, should be changed. Uh, um, the US government is not particularly responsive um, to, to that. Uh, and, and, and so naturally, what would you do in a situation like that? You start thinking about sort of what other people uh, may be able to bring to the table uh, uh, and what those ideas are. Uh, and I mean, of course, uh, in, in, in sort of Guinean ruling circles, so to say, uh, there is already a, a lot of interest uh, in, 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 in socialism. I mean, a lot, a lot of them. Trade unionists, uh, very radical. I mean, you know, uh, they knew very well uh, sort of what that word was about. And that's, I think, the last uh, uh, sort of drop, if you want, that convinces them that at the end of the day, uh, they've got to look at uh, the socialist word if they want to pursue the kind of society they, they have in mind, they, they, hope, to, uh, they hope to build. Um, I mean, it also has to do with, with, with sort of power differentials. I, I, th I think uh, um, 
very few people at the time uh, would have considered in Africa, uh, in West Africa and elsewhere, would have considered sort of the US and the USSR as equals. I mean, the immense power of the United States was obvious to everyone and the more limited uh, power, much more limited power of the Soviet Union in all areas of life uh, um, was was obvious. Um, so there is always a little bit of hesitation uh, uh, before discarding or potentially compromising uh, your relationship with the biggest, most powerful, most dangerous sort of actor uh, on the world stage, really, right? So, yeah. Um, thinking more in general about your, your very good question about sort of looking at West Africa, if you want, from a, from a Soviet perspective, and what, what does that sort of add to the picture or change? I'm, I'm a bit hesitant because of, uh, again, uh, 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 my, my uh, um, lack of training in sort of proper African history. Uh, but one thing I, I, I think I, I can say that I certainly found very interesting uh, um, was that, um, well, you know, often sort of studying uh, uh, parts of the world during sort of what we call the Cold War, uh, often uh, as historians, we say, uh, should sort of try and break uh, binaries and, you know, like this kind of communism, liberalism or, or socialism, capitalism. Well, you know, that's, uh, uh, um, it's not particularly useful uh, outside of sort of Europe and, and, and certain, certain other places. Um, but I mean, looking at all three countries, and you know, maybe that's the, that's a Soviet perspective um, coming in. But I mean, that also comes very much from from sort of local sources. Uh, um, I mean, people in Ghana, in Mali, uh, and and in Guinea, uh, at least people in government, um, were quite comfortable intellectually uh, uh, with with a sharp distinction between sort of socialism and and capitalism. Uh, it, it was far from alien uh, uh, from the world. I mean, those were categories they used uh, on a daily basis, uh, uh, um, and without sort of much uh, much hesitation. Uh, a lot of them. Or socialists. Uh, I mean, they may have been different from, you know, the people sitting in Moscow uh, or or elsewhere in in the socialist world. But they did share a lot of assumptions uh, and some of the similar thinking, and they had read, uh, uh, you know, the same books, uh, and 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 they were inspired by by the same uh, uh, sort of ambitions and and frustrations. And and the same goes, um, for the people who were a little bit more uh, sort of on the on the kind of liberal um, side of of the of the spectrum in kind of economics and politics, more interested in in the West, um, sort of Cold War divisions uh, uh, appear to me at least uh, um, very endogenous. I mean, it's not something that's imposed from the outside. Uh, it's something that, you know, people were thinking and talking about uh, because they were interested in building a state and becoming independent in international sort of exploitative relations and, 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 and building up the economy and organizing society. And so naturally, uh, they became very, very familiar uh, uh, with sort of major intellectual traditions precisely about those things. Yeah. So we've kind of laid the groundwork for the beginning of this relationship and, and why it makes sense. And I'd say that there's a one of the inflection moments of crisis where things begin to be put into question is when the Cold War comes to the African continent, continent in the form of the, the Congo crisis. So how does the Congo crisis affect 
the relationship that the Soviets are trying to develop with West Africans. Yeah, that that's indeed a, it's an important moment. Um, so you know, I'd say that Congo uh, um, is the moment in which the Cold War, in its most uh, um, sort of brutal uh, uh, way, uh, the, the most brutal phase of the Cold War, comes to to the to the Africa, to sub-Saharan Africa at least. Um, but, but you know, if if we think about sort of the Cold War a bit more in general, in a, in a bit more sort of kind of abstract sense, again, you know, uh, shall we organize ourselves in a collective or individual way? Well, that's always been there. Uh, uh, it's not it's not in the sixties. I mean, people were uh, thinking about these things for for a very long time before uh, that moment. But it's true that in in nineteen sixty. Uh, um, the Cold War at its most basic, I mean, with guns uh, uh, and with intervention uh, from sort of uh, external powers uh, uh, really uh, um, comes in its all kind of devastating uh, uh, reality. Um, I mean, what, what happens from, from a Soviet point of view, what, what happens in, in, in Congo in 1960, 1961, uh, um, is that a Western fundamentally military uh, intervention overthrows a government and, and replaces it with a different one that is sort of friendly um, to the US and to the former colonial um, colonial powers. Also with, with sort of decisive uh, uh, um, support from the United Nations, a sort of supposedly a neutral organization which acts in sort of a different way uh, in, in, that, in that context. Um, and thinking thinking about that, people sort of people in Moscow, so to say, in positions of power in the Soviet Union, they start questioning, uh, uh, or or it, it catalyzes uh, uh, questions about uh, the, the wisdom of investing uh, from their point of view into into uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and 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 the Third World at large, uh, um, because the what happens in Congo uh, seems to prove that you know the, the West can organize a military intervention uh, without sort of batting an eyelid in a, in a in a very short time and sort of exclude a socialist world and 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 local progressive uh, uh, they would have called them uh, uh, actors from from power from every possibility of sort of maintaining influence um, and so if it if it's so easy to to lose. Uh, uh, What's the point uh, of of investing? Uh, it's too risky. Uh, it's it's never going to work out uh, because the sort of you know the US and and the Western world is just too powerful uh, for the Soviet Union to be able to sort of make a difference. Um, when the game, so to say, uh, in inverted commas, is is about uh, um, models of economic development, ideas about the future of of the economy of society, uh, even even to an extent about resources, uh, uh, even though obviously the West is a lot more, but even there, there could be a little bit of competition. Uh, um, but if if this is moved to the, to the sort of military security sphere, well, yeah, not much the USSR can do. Right, so the, the politics and the military strategic interests are kind of revealing themselves, but then it's not as if the economic picture is going so well either. You talk about this kind of apocryphal story that the Soviets send snowplows to Guinea, which, if anyone is has has doubts, is not a place that needs snowplows. Um, but you say that there's no need to turn to this story to kind of 
get a sense of the scale of dysfunction and, and waste of the kinds of modernization projects that the Soviets are proposing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is lots of problems. Uh, uh, they are like very concrete, concrete problems. These are very ambitious uh, um, plans. I mean, I guess development plans, we would call them uh, um, today, that involve sort of construction, mechanization and investment and the building of infrastructure, like virtually all aspects of economic economic life in uh, um, in, 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 in the countries. Um, and uh, it's through that you know there has been a lot of attention to to uh, um, you know finding this kind of white elephants, this this sort of projects that go very very wrong, uh, um, and 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 you know you'll find uh, you'll find very many examples of um, of that. Um, I have a little bit of an issue with with sort of you know like funny stories and anecdotes. I mean you know some of them are incredibly sort of amusing. Uh, uh, um, but I think they also kind of serve a little bit of a nefarious <laughs> kind of intellectual project. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, um, the, the stakes are low. It's it's yeah. Uh, um, but I I feel they sort of distract. They they, they present uh, those problems as if they were sort of unique to a context, right? This is something sort of wastefulness or incompetence is is a Soviet or or perhaps West African uh, prerogative. Uh, well, absolutely not. Um, I, I think if we look at any large-scale construction project or, or development plan or, or, or any building site, really, uh, we would find uh, delays and initial estimates that are not quite right and a lot of wishful thinking uh, uh, and a lot of incompetence, why not, uh, and resources that maybe are not quite exactly sufficient uh, to, to, to get there. Um, I think, you know, from... from uh, to the US, to the Soviet Union itself, to, I don't know, Italy or, or England or, or, or the US. I mean, you know, wherever you look, uh, uh, a place in which you build uh, is going to be full of, of stories like that, right? Of, of sort of huge incompetence and, and in crazy ways. That, uh, uh, and, and these plans never quite come to fruition um, because building is difficult. I mean, it's, it's complicated uh, everywhere for everyone. It, uh, it's not just uh, a Soviet or, or West African problem. It's it's being human in a certain way, right? I mean that that you know goes without saying that that you know if you, if you look at uh, Soviet West African economic cooperation, a huge amount of things that go wrong uh, in all sorts of places. Uh, um, but, but yeah, I I think my my point here is that it's not distinctive to that context in a way. It's it's meant to be, yeah. As you're speaking, I'm thinking, and because it's ongoing, you know, just about what Qatar has done in the last 10 years to prepare itself for the World Cup, you know, the the, the same kind of, and, and, you know, what do we have now that we didn't have in 1960? Every possible digital, you know, wireless, online, whatever tool to, you know, not just papers faxed back and forth um, or telegram back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and still sort of, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, the practices that have been used and, and sort of labor exploitation and, and you know like we, we don't need to go there but, but absolutely uh, but but i i'm sure you can uh, um looking at anything i mean you know large infrastructure projects in in sort of in europe and the us and sort of in england i mean you know or or things that were built during covid for example to respond to that kind of emergency well yeah how many stories can we find there right yeah right absolutely 
So these projects, many of them are 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 struggling, are you know being waylaid by 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 problems, and you kind of finish the book in the middle of the 1960s. Not only is Nkrumah deposed in a coup in uh, 1966, and Lodi Boketa will be in 1968, but also Khrushchev is aging, is losing power, perhaps also faculties of mind. And um, so kind of how does the coda of the story go here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not certainly not one for happy endings. <laughs> uh, um, it, it, it most uh, uh, sort of disappears or is abandoned or it sort of crumbles um, quite quickly in the second half of the 1960s everything everything becomes a lot more difficult this relationship uh, uh, to, to continue the metaphor is really breaking apart and and I guess as it happens in, in cases like that everyone blames the other party for, for everything that's that's going wrong right I mean you know people are not very good at taking responsibility and admitting that perhaps they have uh, done uh, um, something not not ideal, uh, uh, and so and so the political leadership in the Soviet Union, or or a large part of it, starts questioning, and these questions become more and more difficult to answer. Is does it really make sense to invest uh, 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 into 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 Ghana, into Guinea, into Mali, into West Africa, into Africa, into the third world at large. We're not really seeing results. We're seeing lots of problems. It's more and more expensive. The West is on the offensive everywhere in terms of uh, sort of military power with guns, but also with sort of offers of economic assistance and trade and whatnot. Uh, is, this, uh, is this something in which, uh, um, again, we can make a difference? I mean, it's 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 a sort of appeal, appeal battle. Uh, um, there's changing in power as well. I mean, you know, Khrushchev is the first to go. He was ousted in, in 1964. Uh, Nkrumah, uh, a couple of years later, in 1966. Uh, uh, Keita in 1968. Uh, um, sort of who's changing in government violence in some cases also breaks down uh, whatever little uh, was left uh, of the of the effort at, at cooperation. Um, by that point, really, there was uh, very few projects had been completed. Uh, 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 many had been abandoned, uh, uh, and many were left in a kind of limbo. Uh, it was unclear who was going to do the financing and how or whether um, they were going to go ahead. Uh, um, so yeah, that's that's the arrested uh, dimension of the of the of the title, uh, sort of both as a consequence of the actions of people and and to a certain extent, loss of momentum. Yeah. So this is the story of the Soviets in West Africa and the West Africans um, and the Soviets, and you know this is I think a a story that maybe was known a little bit. But your book has really taken that story and made it, I think, much more familiar and much more intimate um, with the details that it that it brings to the table. So as we come to a close, I wonder if you would talk to us about your future projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you know, I, I agree that, the, um, you know, there is not much uh, sort of new here. I mean, lots of people have written about, you know, the Soviet Union in, in Africa. Um, I, th I think what makes my book a little bit different is that, uh, I mean, it's 
the Cold War is here, uh, but it's not it's not a Cold War, you know, in that in that sense of sort of coups and spies and soldiers and uh, uh, secret agents and 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 whatnot. Uh, um, I mean, it's about political economy and the history of political economy, and to an extent, ideas about society and and production. Right, uh, um, that's the angle I, I I take, and I sort of maintain. I argue that's the one that matters. The the, the soldiers and the spies and the guns, even uh, they're very very important, but but you know without without sort of ideas to sustain them even they are a little bit powerless right so so that's the um that's the take here um well the future uh, uh yeah that's a, that's a good that's a good question i'm i mean i have a, i'm i'm working on something very much related it's it's very much related uh, um to the to the book uh, uh but but it moves in in different directions uh, sort of geographically and and intellectually too i guess um so i'm 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 moving to latin america <laughs> metaphorically but uh but uh, uh i'm i'm focusing on on that part of the world from a soviet point of view of course uh, um one of the things i sort of kept uh, thinking about writing writing arrested development was how how many echoes um of dependency theory uh, there were in in Soviet thinking, Soviet ideas, Soviet papers, the Soviet way of framing uh, sort of what was going on economically in in, in this case after after decolonization. Um, and so I decided I wanted to sort of look at this a bit more a bit more in detail uh, and and explore contacts, connections uh, between Soviet thinkers about the global economy uh, uh, and and sort of dependency theorists of the of the Latin American school from the 60s and 70s um, especially um, the main idea there is that both groups had a lot in common uh, in terms of how they saw the world in terms of what they were unhappy about and what they would have wanted uh, and they both quite clearly influenced each other uh, they, they read each other in some cases they even sort of corresponded or had sort of personal contacts uh, um, and yet they were always very 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 cautious of acknowledging uh, um, that certain ideas may owe a lot to the sort of Marxist-Leninist tradition, or in the Soviet case, that certain uh, um, sort of arguments uh, 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 about the economy really owed a lot um, to to the to the dependency theory school uh, from Latin America. Um, so that's that's the basic um, sort of gist of it. Yeah, Alessandro, you are indefatigable. You just decide, yep, let's try for another continent, another world of historiography to sink my teeth into. I'm really impressed and quite excited about this, you know, take on intellectual history. I find it really interesting and, and to put Latin America dependency theory into conversation. It's been done, I think, or has been elaborated, you know, thinking about, about Africa, but this kind of yeah, this 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 cross connection with the Soviets sounds really promising. Thank so, you. I mean, thank you. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, and thanks so much for speaking with us today. And I wish you all the best. And I hope everyone goes out and reads a copy of Arrested Development. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs>